Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome, Brendan here with markvetgurus.com, episode 307, Thursday, August the 10th, two thousand. And 23, Mark, um, I know you're well because we had a little bit of a chat in the prep session and it sounds like you're pretty chilled at the moment and I think I'm pretty chilled at the moment too. And I was just saying to you, Mark, how um, I did a bit of a bake-off today um, and I did send you a picture of my previous um, batch of bagels. I've decided to make some bagels for the first time, well, the second time today and Actually turned out pretty damn good, Mark. Um, Brendan, Brendan, you were you were saying when we were having that discussion that you the the your thoughts about the origins of them were confused. What? How? Did, I didn't expand on that. Oh, well, it was who, who who thought of the way of making bagels because basically it's a bread recipe. You, you shove your yeast in your water and your flour and plus or minus sugar together and let it rise as usual then you bash it down again and then you make them into your little bagel shapes and what makes a bagel a bagel mark for those who don't know is you boil them so you then get a pot of boiling water and you put these once risen bagels into the boiling water for a minute or two on each and you flip them over on each side so the the water's infusing into the dough sort of mix. So it's almost like, almost like a dumpling, isn't it? Then you take them out, put them on a on a sheet and uh, put them in the oven and, and cook them like you would with a loaf of bread, Mark. So that's that's what defines a bagel. It's it's a bread mix, basically a, a, a simple bread mix that's um, risen and then boiled and then popped in the oven, Mark. So uh, I just... My th- my question was, you know, who thought of it? <laughs> and how did who they how did they come up with that? You know, maybe they accidentally tripped and had a boiling pot of water, and one fell in there, and they took it out and said, "No, I'm going to shove it in the oven." <laughs> but it does it often uh, that that thought process. I'm interested in it because I do find myself often thinking, "Who was the first person to figure out?" putting this with this in this way tasted so yum and um and yeah um there's a myriad of things that taste really really nice and i wonder about the first time someone there's going to be an awful lot of people who've tasted an awful lot of very poorly tasting stuff to get the good stuff out i say yes and there's it's a little bit i think it's a little bit controversial about well not that much as far as where it actually originated i'm just just looking up those ones now mark um uh on on google and in that it was thought that the actual original bagel was from poland and it was um created from a pretzel dough sometime around the 1200s mark Uh, germans that migrated to poland bought the pretzels with them and then the jewish poles adopted the new bread put a hole in the middle and dubbed it Obwasnzanak, um, which is a bagel, supposedly. Um, so that's and why is there a hole in a bagel? There, there we go. Um, the basic shape is hundreds of years old, Mark. 
So there's lots Whoa. of practical advantages besides an even cooking and baking of the day, which is what I thought it would have been. Helps that water get in and, and it to cook a bit better with that. So the centre gets cooked properly. The hole also allowed them to be threaded or piled high on a dowel, which made them easier to transport and display. There you go. It's all about the marketing. Clicks. Clicks, Brendan. Yes. So... There you go, Mark. So I made some bagels today and also made a loaf of bread as well. So I was very productive there. Um, yes. So that's Baking 101, Mark. And now we're going to jump into some news stories. And before we do that, just remind our listeners, our subscribers, say hello. Send us an email, vetgurus at gmail.com. We haven't had a, an email this week, which is a little bit unusual, um, so it'd be nice to have a hi, how are you, what are you up to um, type email, Mark, because we, we love it. Um, so send us an email, vetgurus at gmail.com. New stories, Mark. I, I'm going to jump into the first one. Um, it's I just like this one for the the actual picture there of the, of the item, and it's a bat skeleton which was found in Western Wyoming in the USA, Mark, and two fossilised bat skeletons unearthed there represent a new species, and and they're the oldest set of bat bones yet discovered, Mark, 52.5 billion year old. And I'll tell you what, and I presume you've seen the, the pic there, Mark, yeah. of the complete, it, it is a complete um, fossil there. Typically, you only end up with one or two bones, don't you? Have a have a skeleton there, but oh, it's a it's a it's an amazingly complete um, skeleton there, Mark. Mark. It's an awesome uh, photo. It, it really is a brilliant photograph. The and like you said, so absolutely complete. And it's in that I've got a couple of um of uh, fish skeletons that look like they're from the same strata. Uh, but, geez, that's breathtaking, isn't it? It is. And we will have a link to this at vetgurus.com for this episode, Mark. Uh, so a very small runt of the genus, Mark, um, the, this um, this particular new species, new dead species, um, 7% smaller than the other bat's closest known cousin, Mark, and it weighed, they think, between 22 and a half and almost 29 grams. And, uh, yeah, so excellent. The skeletons are so much, interestingly enough, like modern bats, Mark. They're not not any closer knowing where they evolved from. <laughs> and they're pretty sure that they also um, indicate that they were bats that these particular bats also hung upside down, like our um, our um, common uh, the the ancestors, um, the re- most recent ones of uh, uh, this friend from fifty two million years ago, Mark. So that's my story. Geez, that's it's um, fossils but, amaze me, Brendan. Fossils are really magical things to have, like a little package from time. That's um, that's something like that, and and the way that they're excavated and found, the way people can look at a rock and go, oh, that'll be good. I'll just crack it there and look. What do you know? A complete skeleton of a bat. Um, yes. That just amazes me. Yes, my story also 
is, well, I, f I feel it's a little bit topical because one of the things that I've, that's, that was a little bit of a surprise when I came up here to the Northern Peninsula area at Bama, near Bumaga, um, way up the tip of Cape York, was that um, uh, hunting of uh, pigs, which the pigs are quite common, um, is one of the, the biggest, um, uh, uh, you know, one of the things that um, many people do for a bit of relaxation up here. Um, and so it's with no surprise then that um, as the pigs in the US, the boars in the US, reach plague proportions, one of the suggestions um, to try and defray the billions of dollars of damage that uh, that these animals can cause um, is to eat them. And some chefs, in particularly in some uh, very, very ritzy restaurants, are putting um, wild boar on the menu alongside such outstanding, you know, meats as Nilgai antelope and Wagyu beef. So I love the title of this one, Mark. Can't beat him, eat him. <laughs> the fight against the US wild boar plague. Look, I think the critical thing with these, and and I have you know no problem as long as the animals are uh, uh, humanely dispatched um, and uh, an appropriate care is taken in terms of um, parasites uh, for wild animals. Um, go ahead and eat them, as far as I'm concerned. I don't hold any hopes, Brendan that nuisance species control is going to be um, affected by them, you know, as long as yes. they stay a, a, a delicacy on um, exclusive restaurants, um, they're not going to... And look, I don't see anything about hunting, whether it's up here on the NPA or um, across the US, uh, controlling these wild, wild species. It's nice that um, they can take some out and... Um, and maybe help little bits of industry, but I don't yes. see it being a major control mechanism. No, we're looking at the article, Mark, estimated 6 million of these pigs in the USA, Mark, um, as a feral species, and 2 million in Texas alone. So, And, yeah. and by comparison, the USDA label... Um, uh, sells what this company, Broken Arrows, the first meat purveyor to get USDA label approve approval for wild boars, sells one thousand five hundred. <laughs> yeah. What percentage of one percent is that? Yes, um, it's not, not much. Not, not much. Not exactly putting a dent in it, but um, yes. Have you had boar, Mark? <laughs> Before you, you became did, vegetarian? Did you, did you say, am I a boar? <laughs> yeah. um, no, I, I, I have not. Um, uh, uh, and it's been, well, um, the best part of uh, nearly 45 years since I've eaten any meat. So you probably I don't even remember. remember what it's like. Yes, yes. Um, well, I haven't myself, and as you know, I rarely eat meat, but I do imbibe occasionally. Um, as far as I know, I haven't had boar, so yes. Maybe I need to head off to Broken Arrow Ranch, Mark, or the other uh, – I love these places – Shogun Farms outside Tampa in Florida is another one. Um, 
and apparently they avoid the taint of the uh, hormones, Mark. I beg your uh, pardon? They avoid the taint of the hormones from these boars by feeding and keeping the pigs they've trapped for six months first. Quarantine them, deworm them, Mark. Monitor them, de-stress them, and make them flavoursome, apparently. So there you go. And they compare it to, they, they say it's a wagyu of pork. <laughs> <laughs> of course they would. Yes, um, the old Shogun Farms. So there you go. Um, Broken Arrow Ranch, Mark. Maybe, perhaps they're not getting too many because of the name, the Broken, and they need uh, to fix their arrows a bit better before they can catch some more. So there you go. Um, yeah. I don't know what the moral of this story is, Mark. Yeah, neither do I. I, I look, I am perfectly happy for uh, species in plague proportions to be utilised as a resource to improve the quality of uh, human protein intake. I don't know that that's where this story is going, but let's go with that. Let's go with that, Brendan. And speaking of pigs, Mark, our main topic... This week is guinea pig eye conditions. And we have covered eye diseases diseases in unusual pets, including guinea pigs, before episode 58, Mark, 22nd of November 2018, in the Wayback Time Machine. And we've mentioned guinea pig eye problems in a couple of other episodes as well. But I thought we'd, we'd bring them together, Mark, some of the common eye conditions we see in our little piggies certainly not an exhaustive list but some of the ones that spring to mind and we both see or have seen fairly commonly mark so i think we should run through these and just chat a little bit about these these ones and some of these are guinea pig specific and some of these are not guinea pig specific and the first one is not necessarily guinea pig specific mark and that's but it is a very common one and that is foreign bodies in those eyes mark i'm sure you've seen a few of these haven't you it is it is a very very common problem and um and it surprises me a little bit how common it is because um the major culprit in my experience are some of the seeds of the plants uh, of which they eat, particularly the hay, uh, grass hay seeds, which I would have always thought that they'd cope with really well. But um, maybe there's something about domestication that's led them to be less assiduous in their control of the troublesome seeds. Maybe they occur in wild guinea pigs, I don't know. But certainly my experience is grass seeds uh, from the hay are a very common cause. They easily get lodged in that conjunctival sac and set off a fairly severe reaction in the guinea pig's eye. Yes, and not unsurprisingly, I agree 100% with what you say there. I think there are some certain individuals of guinea pigs who are just, whether they're clumsy with the way they burrow into their little litter there and their hay and they don't keep their eyes closed or close them correctly and they're prone to getting constant grass or hay seeds in there, Mark. Um, and sometimes uh, it can presumptively be tied in with a, a sudden change of the, the hay that's supplied to them as the pet hay might be particularly seedy, um, that, 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 that sample or, or batch that they got with the hay bale, etc. But a lot of the time there's no rhyme or reason, is there? It might be a guinea pig that's been in the same setup with multiple different lots of hay over its several years of, of existence and then for some reason one day it gets a hay 
on stuck into that um, eye. And like any corneal sort of irritation, Mark, they pretty damn quickly end up with a pretty obvious and, and nasty and, and no doubt painful corneal ulcer there. So what's your sort of approach to these ones? Just briefly, you, you know, you, 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 a quick, quick, mention, yep, yep. quick, quick, oh, quick look, mention on the workup and, and, and your treatment um, preferences with these. And look, it's very often very difficult to be confident about them and, and see what's going on. And so maybe some sedation for the guinea pig, at least some uh, ocular local anaesthetic so you can have a look in the eye without causing pain. Um, and it is a little bit difficult to manipulate, uh, you know, around those conjunctival sacs so that you get a clear view. But that's what you've got to do. And sometimes it means uh, having a short anaesthetic, in my yep. experience, Brendan. Yeah, uh, they are certainly satisfying the ones where you can obviously see a little bit of a or a lot of a hay hay seed sitting there, and um, yeah, I do exactly what you mentioned. First, first thing I will attempt is pop in uh, some local um, anaesthetic drops into that eye, give it a, a minute or two to to kick in, and then uh, grab some grasp in small forceps there and. Um, if it comes out, then it's a, it's amazing how big some of them can be that are hidden away, aren't they, Mark? Um, so there's a, I always mention to the client, even if I'm pretty confident in that consultation that I managed to remove the grass seed, I always cover myself and say, look, there is a, still a slight chance there's a bit more of a grass seed left in there or another grass seed, just in case things aren't settling. And, it, and I think the really important part with any all of these eye conditions is we, we have a revisit um, a few days later to, to, to check things are improving and if they are then the chances are pretty high that you did remove the only seed that was in there, Mark. Um, we do a stain um, as we would with any suspect um, ulceration there with our fluorescein and it's amazing what size of that um, cornea can be involved with it and uh, depending, it hopefully is. it's... It is. That's one of the things that I was going to comment on, Brendan, that um, in uh, dogs or cats, for example, a foreign body might give, as the eyelid moves the foreign body against the cornea, you might get like a nice little linear area, maybe some sort of like oval as the foreign body moves around, as the grass seed moves around. But um, in guinea pigs, it's not uncommon to get the um, virtually that whole um, it's already a little bit protuberant, but the whole cornea sometimes, in my experience, flares up that beautiful fluorescent green when I stick the dye in. Yep, yep. And assuming that ulcer isn't too deep there, Mark, it's still fairly superficial, even if it's covering a fair region of the cornea, um, might um, standard sort of treatment for these, uh, it will then go home on um, some anti-inflammatory, typically meloxicam course, and also um, some eye ointment, which is both going to act as a bit of a lubricant and help in that cornea. And because it has been ulcerated, I do typically add a, an antibiotic um, ointment um, product in that eye. And as I say, get it back within the next few days um, to five days at most um, to re-examine it. And, and it's dramatic, isn't it, how quickly they can heal um, and, and one of those satisfying conditions when when things go to plan. Unfortunately, they can sometimes not go to plan and we can end up with indolent ulcers, etc. and they can be quite 
problematic to deal with, but we won't sort of cover that here, Mark. So, yeah, foreign bodies, extremely common in guinea pigs, Mark. What's our next one? Um, a lot of the tissue surrounding the eye can be hugely reactive. So a conjunctivitis would be sort of the outstanding clinical finding in lots of the guinea pigs that uh, that I get presented for eye problems. And look, Brendan, there is uh, quite a few things that um, can set off the conjunctiva, um, but one sort of stands head and shoulders for me above the rest, um, um, and that's the guinea pig's very own uh, um, species of uh, chlamydia, uh, which, um, which does infect the uh, conjunctival mucosa cause a fairly severe inflammatory reaction and uh, and so you're left with like that lovely pink tissue around the eye puffy and swollen and uh, and certainly um, it's not the only thing but yes. certainly a very common cause and chronic epiphora is the other thing I'd be thinking about with these chlamydia KVI cases Mark they they they're often brought in as my guinea pig has weeping eyes. Um, and interestingly enough, Mark, isn't it that um, some of these may be self-limiting because it's often associated with stress and that this chlamydia organism is sitting there quiescent, um, waiting to flare up um, depending on the immune system of that animal. So we may treat the signs of that or, or maybe not even do anything at all and just give supportive care and it settles back down but it may then flare up and that conjunctivitis occurs again in the future multiple times. And I think that's right. This sort of case, uh, obviously we want to treat the eye, but it's one where the history, is there been a new introduction? Are there social stresses? Has there been a time when the cage has been left out in the cold or the heat? Has there been environmental stresses? Like all the chlamydia infections, uh, um, a degree of stress will lower the immune system enough that the organism can take hold um, and so that extra in investigation may give you a clue that a stressor has been a problem and needs to be managed so the immune system in system can take over and brendan i i also you know every time we treat any guinea pig for any illness we're worried about its utilization of vitamin c the utilization of vitamin c is their requirement for vitamin c is going to rise during a period of illness or stress um, and so that may well become an additional factor um, and and an additional component of treatment when we're dealing with these chlamydia kvi cases yep Absolutely. And I suppose going back one step with most of these eye conditions that we're talking about here in theory, we should also be thinking about um, taking some swabs, Mark, um, not just for looking for that chlamydia cava, but also just for our um, secondary bacterial infections um, that may or may not be troublesome. Um, so, but you know, that might be dependent on how much the client is willing to go or how far the client is willing to go or, or how much to spend with that particular case, Mark. Um, so conjunctivitis, yes. And, and as I um, sort of hinted there, we also have um, bacterial conjunctivitis as we do in other species, Mark, and they're typically streps and staph infections, but they can be other other organisms there and sometimes we get some weird and wonderfuls there and if they're obviously not responding to, to the treatment that we 
instigating them, aren't we? Need to dig a bit deeper and start doing our tests for them. And I think that's what your advice is excellent. Getting those swabs uh, so that you've got a definitive diagnosis, particularly with the high expectations of many guinea pig owning clients who come to the vet, um, get a diagnosis. Don't just assume a conjunctivitis is going to be associated with uh, with a uh, chlamydia case. And th- that leads me on to the other thing that can happen to the conjunctiva um, is that we get this... Um, guinea pig, uh, characteristic guinea pig uh, condition that's often colloquially referred to as fatty eye or PI, where uninflamed conjunctiva um, pops out, um, where there's a protrusion of the conjunctival sac, Brendan. Yes. Um, it's a, what do, you, do you see these often? Yes. yes. The old PI, Mark, or fatty yeah. eye. They, they, I, I love some of these terms, don't you? But it does describe it fairly, fairly well, doesn't it? That the PI, especially because it looks like a little, a little P in the corner of the eye there, Mark. And what it is is most most of these, it's a conjunctival sac protrusion, Mark, um, enlargement and protrusion. Not not a not a third eyelid. Um, it, it does. It's, buckle, yeah, yeah. Um, like people would consider. So prolapse, it's not a prolapse third eye by definition, I suppose, fatty, fatty eye or PI. And there's, there's a few different thoughts, aren't there, Mark, as far as what the underlying possible causes are these? Do you want to mention those? Well, I think there's the first one that I'm aware of is that um, there are certain breeds that of guinea pig that seem to be predisposed to this sort of problem and so uh, can be present um, either as a genetic or structural problem at birth, a congenital form. Um, and there's some theories that maybe diet can affect um, uh, the conjunctival sac and uh, lead to a situation where there's uh, um, a mass effect and then we get the aversion. Uh, but the long and the short of it is no one is uh, absolutely certain. Yes, that's right. Um, and, well, I think we should leave it on that. So what do we do, Mark, with these? What do we? What do you do when you see a PI? <laughs> Generally, nothing. Generally, we, um, uh, like we said before, we watch closely. We often organise a revisit, uh, but we might do no treatment whatsoever. We might wait and see whether the exposed tissue uh, recedes and sits back down in the conjunctival sac, returns to its normal position. Um, we might be tempted if there was ulceration or damage or irritation to resect some of that tissue. But the vast majority of cases, Brendan, we're doing nothing and monitoring. Yep, I agree, I agree. Next condition, Mark, is another one that we probably won't be doing too much, and that's microphthalmia. And and the reason why I put this one in there, so little eyes, Mark, little eyes, not PIs, little eyes. So the globe is very... um, very reduced in size, Mark. I've, I've, a, I've read about these, Brendan, but I actually haven't seen one. Have you seen any? Yes, yes, there I've seen a, seen a reasonable number of them, and and it's often in these guinea pigs. It's a congenital condition of sort, and it's in these ones with those what they call that lethal gene, those Roan cross variations, Mark. So, um, and uh, um, I'm sure you've seen microphthalmia in other species, and, and yes. it's the same sort of appearance in that that not only is the actual globe 
very small for the for the socket there, Mark. Um, but it's it's um, distant. It's away from you. It, it's shrunken in there, and, it, and it's um, um, so that the underlines the other structures there, the eyelids, etc., um, are sort of um, distorted as well because we have that 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 small globe, which is. Um, because it's smaller, um, moved back away from the orbital rim. So what do we do with them? Nothing, Mark, um, if they're coping okay, um, if we've got any secondary problems related to that physical deformity there, uh, apart from saying perhaps we shouldn't breed from this animal if it's a congenital that may be inherited or may not, we don't know, um, or I don't know, perhaps there is a paper out there saying that, Mark, um, if it looks painful, I remove it. Um, otherwise, we, we do nothing. I have read that um, the the divot effect, the socket effect, the fact that there's space in the eye socket because of the small globe does predispose them to complications like extra foreign bodies or um, inappropriate yep. trauma. And, and I have read that um, uh, enucleation in select cases will improve their quality of life. Yep. Yep, so I agree with that. It's um, you know, it's just try. It's a salvage procedure. So yes. So next one, Mark. Do you want to take the next one? Well, I, I uh, um, I'm keen to get your opinion on it as well. But um, we have seen a couple of uh, uh, lacrimal gland uh, prolapses, cherry eyes in guinea pigs. Um, they, unlike the uh, conjunctival sac, which tends to occur. You know, if you're looking at a, um, a guinea pig's eye, I most frequently see those on the lower eyelid um, on the outside, whereas obviously the lacrimal gland prolapse is at the medial canthus. Um, and so, yeah, it just looks like a, a uh, gets its name because the prolapse tissue develops a certain amount of redness and inflammation. Um, it has that uh, glandular appearance that might be related to a you know, the, the appearance of a cherry. Um, so it gets the name cherry eye. And, um, and most of the time, um, we're considering uh, uh, surgically resecting that tissue, Brendan. Well, I agree. I do exactly the same, Mark, with these if I see them. I don't see them very often. Um, and I typically don't hesitate to... Uh, trim that third eyelid that's prolapsed there, Mark. Um, as you know, in, in dogs in particular, we don't, um, the general thoughts are you want to keep that third eyelid that's prolapsed and there's those techniques for the pocket technique, etc., for replacing that lacrimal gland because it's involved with production of the tear film, etc. Um, I... <sighs> I'd have to look up my cases to see whether or not I've tried that in a guinea pig or Mark. Um, have you? I it, I did take the time to start to try and place one, you know, re, uh, reduce one um, using those uh, uh, pocket techniques, um, but I, the spaces are different, the uh, angles are different, and I wasn't able to do it in that particular guinea pig, and so I did resort to uh, resecting the... the uh, um, inflamed tissue and allowing the third eyelid to sit back down in its normal position. Um, and look, I don't see it as being a, um, it's not unlike the other species where uh, 
chronic uh, tear film problems can arise. That's not been my experience in the guinea pigs where I've taken the lacrimal gland away. Yes. Well, if we have any of our listeners who have tried that technique, drop us an email, vetgurus at gmail.com. So the next one, Mark, is a guinea pig-specific one, isn't it? It's um, And it's a good one, and I have certainly see a lot of these. I'd be interested to see how, how many of these you have seen, and that's the osseous metaplasia, Mark, the white opaque material that you see in the anterior chamber at the con- iridocorneal angle, and it's pretty dramatic, isn't it? It's that, you know, moon sort of shape, um, um, pale... Uh, arc, isn't it? And and it goes around in 360 degrees there. Um, that sort of porcelain little, um, and, it, and sometimes a ragged edge and sometimes not a ragged edge, Mark. How many of these do you see? I've only seen a couple, Brendan, but crikeys, they freak the clients out because they're so obvious in the eye and the contrast with that uh, white creamy material in the in that uh, at the edge of the cornea at the iridocorneal angle um, it's apparent to clients and they get really distressed about it um, but um, haven't I think this is a regional thing you know I think uh, uh, the total number of the I would be able to count maybe three or four of these ones that I've seen but I know you've seen a lot more down in Melbourne what are your thoughts on doing treatment mark and, and cause of this oh it's um my favorite form of treatment brendan just uh calming down the client and telling them everything's going to be okay and <laughs> doing nothing yes play Ditto. to my strengths <laughs> Ditto. Um, for those listeners who have not heard of this condition or seen it just do a quick google search for osseous metaplasia guinea pig eyes and you'll see a, a good range of examples of it and it's pretty dramatic and once you've seen one you'll you'll be able to pick it up very easily and yeah my treatment for these is um we'll have another look at it in six months <laughs> do, do you, have you got any thoughts on the the pathogenesis no um <laughs> The well, do you want me to string it out a bit more? No, um, I mean it is what it, it, just the, the description just um, is exactly what it is. It's um, metaplasia of the the cells there, Mark, and that's basically bony bony cells that are forming in that that region. Um, so whether there's any, I don't know. Um, congenital sort of link or, or not um why it occurs um you know so it's not like the fatty eye or pi whip there is a thought not not that i think it's proven that it is more common in the overweight guinea pigs the fatty eye and pi um and that maybe diets related to it but as far as the osseous metaplasia no i don't know anything about the ato pathogenesis of it mark so um, yeah, who knows? Some smarter person than us will work it out one day. <laughs> yes, they will. What? So, what's um? What's the last sort of clinical appearance that you would describe um, amongst uh, the guinea pigs that you see? Yes, and that's Popeye, Mark. <laughs> 
Popeye, exophthalmus, exophthalmus. And the reason why I wanted to put this one in here, so it, a globe that's sort of protruding, um, is because we do see a fair amount of dental disease in guinea yes. pigs, as we do in our rabbits. So we always need to put down... As a differential for exophthalmus in a guinea pig, a retrobulbar abscess mark due to dental disease. Sure, it can be due to other conditions. Um, you know, it can be tumours at the back of the eye, but always, always have that. Being a guinea pig, a bit like rabbits, if you have an eye that's sort of bulging out, always start to think what are its teeth looking like? Is there a problem with the teeth? And we need to do a, common a work things up there. happen commonly, and guinea pigs commonly get dental issues. They don't oh, frequently have abscesses, and the retrobulbar space is a common spot. I would say, um, you know, the first three differentials uh, for an exophthalmic guinea pig um, is dental disease, dental disease, dental disease. And then you start looking for, you know, there will be cases that have. Uh, retrobulbar neoplasia or other other mass effects or intraocular neoplasia there's yeah there's all the sort of weird and wonderfuls but yeah dental disease i'd always be and being a being a guinea pig yes i, th I think it's an important one to consider with the mark um so there's what five or six of the conditions that we um that sort of leap out to me with guinea pigs mark that we commonly see or, or not necessarily commonly see but but um regularly regularly see or at least um make me think of what eye conditions do we see in a guinea pig that may or may not be guinea pig specific and they're the ones i i think of mark so any final thoughts before we get out of here well, I think um, you've done a good summary, Brendan, and I think uh, it is interesting that uh, they do have some uh, very, very different cases, different uh, conditions to some of the other small herbivores that we get to see, and so it's good for us to run through them, and I like that list a lot. So do I, Mark. <laughs> and I think with that, we'll get out of here. Mr. Atro's here, and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.